0: I'm gonna leave y'all in on one thought and I'm gonna we'll leave. I'm a big believer in fate. I have a good feeling about this. That's all I'm gonna tell you. We all swore that Sunday night. We will be coming back. We will come back. We will beat them in 85. We will beat them in 85. And you wouldn't bet against Patrick Reed following him in? I was very emotional. I started to think about uh, maybe the possibility of winning here uh, today. Uh, a few thoughts uh, for my friend Sevi. This one is for, for him. Five of you have already asked me tonight, you know, what's the winning formula? And what's the difference year in and year out? And You know, if I could put my finger on it, would have changed this shit a long time ago. This is for the Ryder Cup. Oh, and it slipped by the edge. It slipped by the edge, and now things change. Now things change. I live for the Ryder Cup. That's why I'm here. I will deliver a point. There is, and always has been, something about the number three that is so deeply woven into the fabric of human existence that if you wanted to get really mystical or maybe occult about it, you could almost call it the elemental number, the number of life. You've heard the phrase, things happen in threes, and that could be describing anything from hearing a strange word three times in the same day to three famous people dying in the same week. The number three is all over religion, dating all the way back to the ancient Mesopotamians and the Egyptians through the three gods of Hinduism to, of course, the one most familiar to the Western world, the Holy Trinity of Christianity. The huge number in art, the triptych paintings, the three acts of a Hollywood screenplay, the major and minor thirds in music. If you're watching an improv or a sketch comedy show, you'll likely hear the beats of a joke three times. It's called the rule of three. And when it comes to storytelling, from the Oedipus cycle in ancient Greece to Star Wars, so often things happen in trilogies. Why do I bring this up? Well, I like to look at the origin story of the modern rider cup through this same prism. There are some great individual kind of one-off Ryder Cups out there. The War by the Shore in 1991 at Kiwa Island. The Draw on the Dunes with a concession in 1969. The American comeback at Brookline. Of course, the European comeback at Medina. But to tell the story of the Ryder Cup in the European era, to understand why things are the way they are today, you have to go back to that tried-and-true format, the Trilogy. And in this case, the transformation began in 1983 at PGA National in Florida. That's part one. That's what we're doing here today. Continued in 1985 at the Belfry in England. That's act two. And the finale comes in 1987 at Mirfield Village in Ohio. Three contests, a trilogy. And the Ryder Cup that emerges on the other side is, to put it mildly, a very different beast. Now, if you listen to the first episode, I traced a little bit of the old history of the Ryder Cup, and at the risk of repeating myself, I'm going to do it again, maybe a little faster this time. The main thing you have to know is that from 1927, when this event starts, to 1981, the story of the Ryder Cup is a story of thorough American dominance over the British, later the Europeans. I said it last time, there's nothing dramatic or surprising about this. America had the overwhelming population and talent advantage to the extent that no amount of tactics or team spirit or anything else could overcome it. They won over and over and over. It was boring. It was predictable. And it's kind of a miracle the event even survived. And I think it's important to mention, even if we do it quickly, that the fact that Great Britain endures the greatest trauma in the history of its empire in World War II is not irrelevant here. It's not just about losing soldiers for them. It's about losing civilians during the bombings. It's losing infrastructure. It's having to rebuild your country, both materially and psychologically. That's going to take a toll on every walk of life for a very long time. And even something as seemingly tangential as the Ryder Cup, yes, it will be affected. So, as this American golden age is happening, people know there's a problem. Steps are taken throughout the years to try to make it more competitive. The format changes a few times. Irish players are introduced to the British team. Then eventually the whole continent of Europe comes on board in 1979. But four years into the European era, the situation is still utterly dismal. 1979 at the Greenbrier, year one of the Europeans. It's America winning at home 17 to 11. 1981, the second time Europe gets its first chance as a continent on home soil. America embarrasses them, wins by nine points. And it's important to understand that really nobody is happy about this. Obviously, the Europeans aren't happy. They're miserable. There's infighting and bad feelings, and nobody likes the captains and on and on. It might sound familiar to modern fans of the Ryder Cup, but at the time, the Americans aren't really happy either. In fact, it's Jack Nicklaus in 1977, after that Ryder Cup, who suggests to Lord Darby, this guy who was the president of the British PGA at the time, a cousin to Queen Elizabeth, that, hey, you better do something because this isn't competitive and it never has been. And the funny thing about it is that part of the reason he brought it up is because Tom Weisskopf of all people actually qualified for the 1977 Ryder Cup and decided to skip it to go hunting. Now imagine that happening now. Weisskopf later admitted he was wrong to do so, but the quote at the time from him was that he didn't know when he'd have a chance to do it again. Hunting that is not the Ryder Cup. Here's some more context. In the cup we're about to talk about, 1983, there was almost no TV coverage on Saturday because ABC aired football. They'd show a scoreboard at halftime and that was it. And on Sunday, they only showed two hours. But guess what? It was the first time the Ryder Cup had ever been on American TV. And the players on the course estimated that in the dramatic finish and Sunday singles we're going to talk about, there were about, oh, 1,000 spectators. Now, maybe they were lowballing it a little bit. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but not by much. And they're saying 1,000, not on the 18th hole, 1,000 on the whole course. We're talking about a tournament that today gets about 250,000 people for the entire week, and that's only because they have to turn a lot of people away. And 83 is part of what starts to get us from there, point A, to point B, where the Ryder Cup is a phenomenon. But understand, at the time, this is, at best, a third-tier sporting event in the U S and it's kind of embarrassing to everyone, but it shows what the Americans, or at least some of them think of this. And the other thing that may have inspired Nicholas besides Weisskopf and his conversation with Lord Darby is that he played a match in 77 with Mark James and Tommy Horton, and they were very slow players and he and Tom Watson killed them five and four. But Nicholas is thinking, why am I out here being miserable with a snail like pace beating these guys? And it's not even competitive. And so he's annoyed for a few reasons. He talks to Lord Darby, and Lord Darby agrees with him and says he's going to handle it, which he does. He doesn't even really put up a fight. And this is a guy who can, you know, anytime he wants, ring up Queen Elizabeth, get her on the phone. He pretty much does everything Jack Nicholas wants him to do. Why? Well, consider this: Jack Nicholas was born in 1940. By the time he and Lord Darby have their conversation, 77 in Nicholas's lifetime, the American Ryder Cup record is 16 and one. Yeah, there's a draw thrown in there, but U.S. retains the cup. We're going to call it a victory, 16-1. and 1. And largely the Americans think, okay, sure, we'll take the wins every two years, no skin off our backs. It's the Europeans, and the English and Scottish in particular, who have to bear the brunt of this humiliation. Which is not easy, because golf was born in Scotland. But they've been so long at the bottom that they don't really know or expect any different. If you want a contemporary parallel, you don't have to look very far, because we have the President's Cup. I was at Melbourne in 2019 when the Americans squeaked out a very, very narrow win over the internationals. And I can tell you that everybody, whether they were from America or anybody else in the world, whether they were a journalist or worked for a governing body or had any vested interest at all, including, by the way, a lot of savvy, forward-thinking American fans, they all wanted the internationals to win that thing. Why? Because we love the idea of the event. 2019 gave a glimpse of what it could become, but we also know that it's not going to really be any good until it's competitive. Around 1980, that's where the Ryder Cup was, almost exactly. As a quick aside, by the way, Americans might have been growing indifferent, but the British and the Europeans still cared. Even getting slaughtered, they still cared. I asked Bernard Langer very recently, after hearing about how unpleasant the first European Ryder Cups were, I said, why did you even play? You're getting no money for it, it's not fun, you're getting killed at the time, why did you play? And he said... Because it was a big deal in Europe. Even though we were losing, it was a big deal to make the team, big deal to represent your tour in your country, and for me especially, I was never an amateur and had never played any team events. And I really enjoyed playing the best Americans and getting to see them and getting to know them. And he's German. He's not even British. But the separation between the tours at the time, it meant the Europeans only got to see these great Americans once in a while, and the Ryder Cup was a vehicle for that. So they cared, players and fans alike, and in a strange way that almost puts the impetus on the Americans to make a change. So what happens? What happens when you're Team Europe and you're staring down the barrel of 56 years of rotten history, where in that time nobody has any answers, nothing good ever sticks, and now it's on you to somehow solve it? Well, lucky them, Tony Jacklin happened. Tony Jacklin is the first of what will be many great European captains, and he's by far the most important of them all. He's the reason that the rest of them existed. He is someone that history, and quite frankly, the Americans, did not expect. And remember those three Hindu gods I mentioned before? I, uh, I want to bring them up again because you've got Brahma the creator, Vishnu the preserver, and Shiva the destroyer, and it works because in his first three captaincies, Tony Jacklin is going to be all of those things more than once. He's the man, finally, who can end the British nightmare. He's the visionary. He's the pioneer they've been waiting for. And by the time he's done, the Ryder Cup will be unrecognizable. If you enjoy it today, if it's something that makes you excited, well, thank Tony Jacklin. Because in five short years, he's asked to pull off the impossible feat of not just stopping history in its tracks, but actually reversing it. Nobody sees this guy coming. He's one of golf's great dark horses, and somehow he pulls it off. It all starts in 1983, part one of our trilogy. The Europeans go to America, where they have never won before, where they've barely even been competitive, and they come out punching. There's a funny thing about history, and I'm talking any kind of history, and it's that some of the greatest leaders are very unlikely figures. It's no different in golf. We talked in the last episode about Paul McGinley, who is maybe, perhaps even arguably, the best Ryder Cup captain ever, one of them for sure. And he was someone who never even got serious about golf until he was 19, never won a major. And yet he's so talented in this one specific way, and he's got a little bit of ambition too, that he almost inevitably falls into a leadership role. Well, Tony Jacklin was also an unlikely figure, but it wasn't because of his playing resume. In fact, not only was he a tremendous pro, but I think when you look back at the history of golf since, let's say, 1950, he's one of the most underrated players And I emphasize that word player. I'm not talking about Ryder Cup captaincy. I'm talking about players most underrated in the sport. Part of it, of course, is time. He did most of his damage in the 60s and 70s. That's more than 50 years ago now. And we have a bias toward more recent events. Part of it, too, is that he's incredibly well known for a moment called the concession in the 1969 Ryder Cup, which we'll get to in more detail shortly, but which was so famous that it has a way of overshadowing everything else Tony Jacklin did. And beyond the concession, he's of course famous as a four-time Ryder Cup captain. So when you're dealing with a guy who's now 76 and has these two really big lines on his resume, it's inevitable that something gets lost in the shuffle, and that something is the vast majority of his playing career. Jacqueline was an only child, born in the town of Scunthorpe in 1944 in the latter stages of World War II. This is an industrial town in the north of England. His dad works as a truck driver and at the Steelworks. His mom is working weekends at the market, and he wasn't very old before he himself worked a paper round and helped his mother load vans. These are not rich people. In fact, money was a constant problem in his younger days. His father took up golf at the behest of a neighbor when Tony was eight. He ended up following in his dad's footsteps, and by age 13, he had won the local boys' championship as a completely self-taught golfer and against some much older kids. He was good-looking even as a young man, incredibly confident, the kind of kid who would practice his own autograph he just knew he'd be famous and though he quit school at 15 and he spent a year at the steelworks golf was always his ticket out and so at age 18 he turned pro didn't take him long to find success either he made the cut at the 63 open at royal Lytham and saint anne's which gave him some money to travel on and he was a very good touring pro by 64 now just 19 years old and when we talk about the tour then by the way it was not the european tour But a series of independent events, mostly organized either by a golf club or a company or one of these sort of scattered governing bodies. But it wasn't until 1972 that the European tour was formed. And even then, it wasn't really integrated continent wide because you had the British PGA and other governing bodies kind of doing their own thing. So Jacqueline's playing events like the Coombe Hill Assistance Tournament, which was his first really big win. And these other kind of British PGA type events that were popping up here and there. But he was a flashy guy even then, the kind of guy who Rick Riley wrote in Sports Illustrated would wear gold lamé pants, lavender cashmere sweaters, things like that. And he was clearly destined for bigger things. So after he met his wife, Vivian, in Northern Ireland in 65, he started to travel. And at this point, that year, 66, 67, he's winning tournaments in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, he's playing in Asia. Along with his usual European tour events, he's all over the world. And his wife's caddying for him on some of these long trips. And then Tony Jacklin makes a big decision, a fateful decision, which is that he's going to play in America. It sounds simple, but that's not easy at that time. There are not many quote-unquote foreign players on the PGA Tour, that's what they called them then, and the rules make it a little difficult to go full-time. I mean, as late as 1986, Sevi Ballesteros was feuding with Dean Beeman, the PGA Tour commissioner at the time, because he essentially got banned that year for not playing 15 events the year before and the reception is a little hostile too. Jacqueline recalled one incident where an American player named Dave Hill stood a few feet away from him and said that he didn't think foreign players should be allowed to play in America. And so Jacqueline has to bear the brunt of that. And when we spoke, he told me, quote, I've never met anybody that could help where he was born. But Jacqueline wants to be the best player in the world. He's incredibly ambitious at this point, And he knows to do that. He's got to beat the Americans. So, A quick little historical aside here. If you go on Wikipedia and look up the list of men's major champion winners, you start out and it's all British. The Open Championship, of course, the first one starting in 1860. The U.S. Open joins the fun in 1895, PGA Championship in 1916. And in all of them, the Brits are completely dominating. As you'd expect, it's their sport and these are the early days of it. It takes 17 years before an American wins the U.S. Open. I repeat, U.S. Open. And when it starts to change, it does so slowly. Guys like Walter Hagen, Francis Weimay sneaking in a couple titles here and there. Then World War I hits. And afterward, it's like somebody snapped their fingers, flipped the light switch because American golf takes off. In 1922, the three majors, remember, there's still no masters at this point, are won by Hagen, Gene Sarazen, and Gene Sarazen. What do they all have in common? They're all American. And Hagen wins at Royal St. George, which makes him the first U.S.-born winner of the British Open, the Open Championship. From there, all of a sudden, it's a story of American dominance. Americans are winning all over the place. By the time the Masters comes along, three out of the four majors are in America, and you go back to Wikipedia, guess what? It's American flags all over the place. By the late 60s, the British have gone almost two decades without winning the Open Championship, and they're not even sniffing a U.S. Open or PGA or Masters. I mean, the Masters starts in 1934, and the British aren't going to win that one until Nick Faldo does it in 1989. It's more than 50 years. That's how bad things got. And when it's not the Americans winning at this point, it's Bobby Locke or Gary Player from South Africa, Peter Thompson, and a few other guys from Australia. But the English, the Scottish, the ones who gave this game to the world? Nowhere to be found. So, Tony Jacklin's ambitions as a player are personal, but... Because of the nature of the sport at the time, they're also by default almost patriotic or at least nationalist in some way. And see if this sounds familiar. In order to fulfill that ambition, he's got to do it against a historical juggernaut, yes, the Americans. He's got to beat Jack Nicholas, He's got to beat Arnold Palmer. He's got to beat Lee Trevino. You don't have to stretch very far to see the parallels between what he had to do as a player and what he would later have to do as a captain. So, he gets his PGA Tour card in 67. There's a good interview in Golf.com about that time in his life where he says something a little remarkable. Read this quote. Being in America, my game really accelerated. I became close to Yancey and Tom Weisskopf. Tom's mentor was Tommy Bolt. I had played with all the best players we had in Britain, but they didn't know as much about the golf swing, particularly the importance of the lower body, the legs. We were compromised by the weather and the Lynx courses. It wasn't about making swings. It was about playing shots, you know? But in America, I had the opportunity to work on technique. End quote. So here's Jacqueline not only trying to plant a flag where no British golfer has in decades, but he learns that his own country doesn't even really know the best way to swing a club. I mean, to me, that's pretty stunning. But Jacqueline improves, and he does something amazing in 1968, which is that he wins the Jacksonville Open Invitational. You might hear that and say, okay, give me a break. I can tell just by the name, It's not around anymore, but I can tell by the name it's just a normal PGA Tour event. Yes, true. But when was the last time a European won a quote-unquote normal PGA Tour event? The answer is actually harder to find than you think, but it's the 1920s, and it wasn't even really the PGA Tour then. Jacqueline is essentially the first. Let's call him the first European to win on the PGA Tour. More or less, that's true. And he does it paired in the final round with Arnold Palmer. And I'm going to quote him now from that same golf.com piece. He said, quote, and winning in Jacksonville in March 68 was a big deal because I played the last day with Arnold playing in front of Arnie's army was like playing with Jesus Christ. I mean, they didn't give a damn about what you were doing. And despite that, I got it done. And that was a great confidence booster knowing that I could win in that type of arena against all odds. I had to be tough playing over here because there were a bunch of guys who resented any foreign player in those days. 50 years is a long time ago. The attitudes were a bit different then. It was a battle to survive. When I stepped on the golf course, the softest thing about me was my teeth. End quote. So he's a pioneer already, age 24. And he becomes a pioneer again when he becomes the first British player to win the Open Championship in 1969 in years. And then he becomes the ultimate pioneer a year later in 1970 when he wins the U.S. Open first British man to do that in 43 years, and the first Englishman to win it since 1924. And by the way, a little poetic justice, the man who came in second at that U.S. Open, Dave Hill, of course, is the one who let Jacqueline know that he didn't think foreigners should be allowed to play in America. You can't understate what Jacqueline's win does for the English game. It's basically like a defibrillator paddle on the still heart of the British sport. It revives them. And when you see a generation of British golfers having way more success internationally 10, 15, 20 years down the road, a massive part of that is down to Jacqueline, who did this all on his own. Even all the way in 2013, when another Englishman, Justin Rose, wins the US Open, he thanks Jacqueline. That's how much this resonates then and continues to resonate today. And again, I mention all this because when he's asked to do a very similar thing in 1983, I'll use the phrase one more time to stop history in its tracks. Well, it's not exactly the same thing because it's a team instead of one man and he's not even playing. But then again, it's not that different either. And he knows what to do because in a way he's done it before. So throughout this whole time in his playing career, Jacqueline is also playing in Ryder Cups. And a lot of times when we look back on a career, you can find pairs of people who always seem to find each other in the historical record one way or another and Tony Jacklin and Jack Nicholas are two of these people. And the most famous moment they're going to have as players comes in 1969 at Royal Burkdale. You already know this is in the midst of a long American Ryder Cup winning streak, but here you have the rare case of a very close, exciting match. In fact, I think I said last time that while we're focusing on one Ryder Cup per episode in this podcast, they're probably all going to be after 1983, but 1969, that might be the one exception. It's good enough... Within that kind of boring stretch, it's good enough to merit a little bit more attention. Well, we'll deal with it quickly here. It was a tense Ryder Cup. No love lost at all between the two teams. Jacqueline told me that their captain, Eric Brown, a guy who is known as the fiery Scott, told the British team that if the Americans lose the ball, don't help them look for it. And Jacqueline laughed and he thought to himself, well, there's no way I'm going to not help them look for it. But that attitude carried down to some of the players. And the Americans had guys like Dave Hill, another player named Dan Sykes, who Jacqueline said was a, quote, miserable bastard, his words, and a few others who were mean-spirited in that kind of same way. There was almost a fistfight on Saturday. So looking back on it, this is a blood feud, and it seems to be the combination of maybe some provincial attitudes on some of the Americans' part and probably a bit of defensiveness and insecurity on the Brits' part because they get thrashed and humiliated so often which makes it an unlikely venue for one of the really great acts of sportsmanship ever in my opinion, but that's what transpires. Now remember, Jacqueline's a star at this Ryder cup. He's the reigning open champion. And he plays like that. He waxes Dave Hill on Thursday. He beats Nicholas and Sykes in four ball on Friday. And in the morning session on Saturday, he beats Nicholas four and three. You hear this and you're probably thinking, wait, this sounds kind of weird, this format. Yes. Good listening. You're right. They played Thursday through Saturday. Then, and they had two single sessions on Saturday. So come the afternoon, the final single session, it's 13-11 to the UK. They're winning. There are eight matches left, and when you know it, Jacqueline and Nicholas get drawn together again in the final match. And the Americans, facing their first loss in 12 years, even though they're on enemy soil, they make a huge push. Hill, Miller-Barber wins, Dan Sykes, Gene Littler wins, and coming down to the last match, it's tied, winner take all which is bad news for Jacqueline because he's one down on 17. Then he makes a 50-foot eagle putt on that green, an absolute miracle. He wins the hole, and they're square, heading into the final hole with the Ryder Cup itself tied. This is massive. And Nicholas does a, a pretty funny thing. After their tee shots, Jacqueline is off like a flash, like a lot of players do. You want to be the first one walking out there, a little speed, make the other guy look at your back. So he's marching down the fairway, but Nicholas won't let him get away. He yells for him to stop. He comes over to him. He puts his arm on his shoulder and he says, are you nervous? And Jacqueline doesn't miss a beat. He says, I'm bloody petrified. And Nicholas responds, me too. So they both get on the green. They're they're each about 30 feet away. Jacqueline goes first. He hits his putt to two feet. And he thinks if Nicholas gets close, they'll go good, good and get out of there. But remember, in a tie, the team that won the last time retains the cup. So it's not really quite a tie. Meaning Jacqueline has much more of a motivation to try to beat Nicholas on this hole, where for Nicholas, having the hole basically wins the Ryder Cup. So when Nicholas hits it four and a half feet past, Jacqueline has to make him putt. He's compelled to. He has to. Of course, Nicholas makes it. He's a great champion. Of course, he's going to make that putt. And then with the eyes of the golf world on him, he picks up Jacqueline's marker. He concedes the putt. He says something like, I don't think you would have missed it but I would never have given you the opportunity in these circumstances. And now looking back at it today, it's easy to see this as kind of an easy PR win for Nicholas. Everybody praises it now. The two have collaborated on a golf course called the concession, and it's generally hailed again as one of the great acts of sportsmanship. But I think it's really important here to consider it within its time. And as you might guess from hearing about what some of the Americans were like that year, this was not very well received by them. In fact, Nicholas's captain, Sam Sneed, was furious. Here's a quote attributed to him. He says, quote, When it happened, all the boys thought it was ridiculous to give him that putt. We went over there to win, not to be good old boys. Here's one from Billy Casper. We worked so hard to get where we were, and then to have that be the finalization of the Ryder Cup. It was quite a sensation for everyone concerned there. Tommy Aaron gets quoted as saying, he picked up Jacqueline's coin. We were all shocked. We couldn't believe that he had done this. They didn't get it. Some of them would over time, like Billy Casper. But at the time, they were pissed. They wanted to win. I even asked some of the current players on the PGA Tour what they would have done. I asked them when they were playing the WGC this past year at the concession course. A lot of them, by the way, had no idea what I was talking about at the concession. But a lot of them said when I explained it to them, they wouldn't do it, including Justin Thomas. So for Nicholas, in that atmosphere, to even think of saving Jacqueline from potential humiliation, if he had missed the putt, to think of it in that moment, amidst these incredible nerves and all the fighting and bad blood that had been going on that weekend, and by the way, this was Nicholas's first Ryder Cup, so he's surrounded by older players, which is just another reason you'd think to kind of march in lockstep rather than do something controversial, for him to even think of that shows, I think, incredible empathy, shows incredible courage. It's easy to overhype things at times, but this to me is, if anything, underrated. Whatever you think about Nicholas now, the concession, in my mind, really is one of the great gestures. It's called having a sense of the moment and a sense of history. So that's the start of Jacqueline and Nicholas, 69. It's one of six Ryder Cups Jacqueline will play between 67 and 77. It's by far the closest. He and the UK and a handful of Irish players get demolished and the rest of them. And he finishes his playing career 0 6 1 in Ryder Cups. Again, might as well be 0 7. And we talked before about his ambition to be the best player in the world. In 1970, it looks like maybe he's well on his way. But things turn, and when they turn, they turn quickly. And the seminal moment comes in 1972. Jacqueline is still just 28 years old, and he comes into the 17th hole at the Open Championship that year, tied with Lee Trevino. He gets on in three at the par five, has a 15-foot birdie putt, Trevino's over the green in four, all of which means it looks very much like Jacqueline is going to take a lead, maybe even a two-shot lead, into the 72nd hole, the last hole of the tournament. Trevino does something interesting. He even congratulates Jacqueline in the fairway. And he, you know, he goes to his, his fifth shot, barely takes any time over it, but he chips it with a nine iron, goes in the hole. Somehow he made par. Jacqueline a little bit stunned he overreacted he decided right then and there he's going to bury his birdie putt he's going to win the tournament right there instead he runs it three feet past and he misses the comebacker so incredibly now he's going to the 72nd hole and he's trailing by a stroke not only that but he's really mad because Trevino had kept chipping in that week that wasn't his first piece of luck over and over it was happening and it felt unfair to him he got in his head he bogeys 18 that's it somehow Lee Trevino wins And in a way, which Jacqueline admits, and it's hard for a player to admit this, but that moment broke him. This is what he told James Corrigan of the Telegraph years later, quote, I was done after that, as far as majors were concerned, and majors were the only thing that mattered to me. It knocked the stuffing out of me. That night at the Gray Walls Hotel, where we were all staying, Nicholas and Arnold Palmer both came up to me and said, don't let it affect you. Don't let it change your outlook. But it wasn't that straightforward. Golf isn't that straightforward. Something, I don't know what, died inside me that day, end quote. Here's what he told Rick Riley, quote, I felt bloody sick, nothing's fair, life and golf are for the takers, you've got to take it, grab it, and keep it, never give anything away, end quote. He never contended in a major again, he won a handful of European tour events here and there, but that was it for him in the really big events, it was like he couldn't take it anymore, and he was only 28 years old. I mentioned before that Tony Jacklin was an unlikely captain, and I still haven't really explained why. Well, the years went on, Jacklin moved back from the U.S. to Europe, and he went about his life as a good but not great professional golfer. In 1979, the Ryder Cup expanded from just the U.K. and Ireland to the entire continent of Europe, partly again, as we said, because of Jack Nicklaus, or maybe largely because of Jack Nicklaus. But that first year, there were only two continental players who made the first trip to the Green Briar in West Virginia. That was Sevi Ballesteros and Antonio Garrido from Spain. As we said, the quote unquote Europeans got slaughtered again. Larry Nelson personally laid waste to Sevi. It's one of the funny lost bits of Ryder Cup history that Nelson went five for five, the only guy to do so in the current format. And four of the five times, Sevi's name got drawn right alongside him. But maybe the biggest story of the event was the behavior of two Englishmen named Mark James and Ken Brown. There's a book about Ryder Cup history by two writers named Peter Pugh and Henry Lord, both of them very obviously British, very fun, kind of a, a snarky approach to things, and here's how they describe it. Quote, This was the era of punk rock and rebellious youth, and they were going to show that they were with it. An early sign of trouble ahead was flagged up by the two appearing at Heathrow wearing casual clothes instead of the official uniform of suit and ties worn by the rest of the team. Once in the USA, the two missed a tea meeting because they had gone shopping, And at the opening ceremony, both behaved as though the whole thing was a waste of time. End quote. Jacqueline told me they behaved abominably like felons. Were generally obnoxious, even to the point of hiding their faces when a photographer came around. In Robin McMillan's excellent oral history of the Ryder Cup, which I would recommend to anyone who likes this stuff, it's called Against Them. John Jacobs, who was the captain for the Europeans that year, lays out their sins. He says they showed up looking like tramps. On the airplane, as we said, talked during the National Anthem at the opening ceremony. James himself had to be basically screamed at even to attend that ceremony because he wanted to stay in his room and eat cheeseburgers. Then he has an injury that everyone thinks maybe he faked and he doesn't play after his first match. And when they did play, they played terribly. And when James got injured and Ken Brown had to play with the Irishman, Des Smith, he wouldn't even talk to him to the point that Hill Irwin, part of the team that waxed them, said that Brown played like he didn't care. And John Jacobs embarrassed him in front of the team, basically saying that he was a baby. When the two got back to Europe, Brown and James, they were fined, one of the largest fines ever given out by the European tour at the time, and banned from international play for a year. Everyone, and I mean everyone, was pissed off at them. So imagine how Tony Jacklin felt in 1981 when he was the spot behind Mark James on the money list right around 12th. And the captain, John Jacobs, who was also the captain in 1979 and had watched Mark James's buffoon act, took Mark James with a captain's pick over Tony Jacklin. Well, that was it for Jacklin. Jacobs invited him to be an assistant. He said, hell no, or as he's quoted against them, he tells them to stick it in their ear. And not being picked is a big deal for him, but it's not his only beef about the Ryder Cup. Listen to this quote. By then, I was totally disenchanted and particularly with the attitude of those in charge, not just of the Ryder Cup, but golf in Europe generally. For a dozen years or so, I'd been playing mostly in the States and was constantly aware of how much higher standards were over there, End quote. He was talking about players, but he was also talking about the quality of the courses, locker rooms, food, practice facilities, everything. And he was sick of the British PGA being completely cheap about the Ryder Cup. He goes on. Quote, I particularly remember one year in 1975 at Arnold Palmer's home club, Laurel Valley, we were all given stylo's plastic shoes. And one of my soles came completely off during my singles match against Ray Floyd. Meanwhile, there they were, the Americans traveling by Concord, looking a million dollars, wives to match, and the best of everything laid on. In those days, we really were second class citizens and like lambs to the slaughter, end quote. It's funny to read that today because we associate Ryder Cup dysfunction with the Americans, but at the time, clearly, it belonged to the UK and then to Europe. Jacqueline used a great word, I thought, to describe what happened to his teams in the Ryder Cup, and that word was frappade, as in they were frappade by the Americans routinely. And he also said something really interesting to me about their mentality going in and how they would handle this kind of humiliation that came their way every two years. They may have been lambs to the slaughter, but that's not how they saw themselves because, of course, they have their pride. So what did they do? Well, to Coach Jacqueline again, from when I talked to him in Florida, he said, quote, in those days, it was quite a lot of bravado, if you like, not confidence. You wouldn't be confident. It was more like, oh, we can do it. But there was nothing that really happened to make you believe that could be. It was superficial bravado, like we can beat these buggers, and you talk about it, but when you've got the real confidence required, it comes from inside. It's not something you brag about, it's something you do." I asked if there was an inferiority complex and he said, absolutely there's an inferiority complex. We stood in the first tee and we were two down before we ever hit a bloody ball. So the bravado was a defense mechanism and a symptom of all the losing. And maybe you could argue that even the way Ken Brown and Mark James behaved was a symptom too. But, 81 comes, Jacobs picks James completely alienating Jacqueline, who had actually felt sorry for Jacobs after '79, but was now enraged with him. And losing Jacqueline from a playing perspective at that point was maybe not a death blow or anything close to it, because he was past his prime. But then they went and managed to do something worse, which is that they lost Sevy Ballesteros. Now Sevy had gone from a very big star in '79 when he won the open championship to an outright superstar by 81 because he'd won the Masters in 1980 which you'll remember at that point, no British player had ever done. In fact, he was the first European to do it. Couple that with his good looks and his passion. And this is an incredibly exciting person to have in the sport. The guy was electrifying. And it probably comes as no surprise that as he becomes a bigger draw, well, he wants some appearance fees, not just from the Ryder Cup, but at European tour stops too. And in some places he gets them, but then Europe says they don't want to do it anymore. They want a complete stop to it. But guess what? They keep paying Americans, which pisses Seve off even more. And the Ryder Cup especially says no, no appearance fees. They could have picked him, but when a three-man committee made up of Jacobs, Bernard Langer, and Neil Coles met, only Jacobs voted to include Seve. So he was out for 81. And the Americans came in with a great team to Walton Heath, and they massacred the Europeans 18.5 to 9.5. So 1981 ends, 1982 comes around, and nothing happens. The next Ryder Cup is going to be at PGA National in 83, but 1983 comes and nobody hears anything. Why? Well, that's because there was a fight going on. And the fight was within the British PGA, and it involved a spirited disagreement between the old guard and the new guard about what kind of person should be Ryder Cup captain. You won't be surprised to learn that the old guard fought for this idea of a ceremonial captain, a kind of lifetime achievement award, basically an old guard captain. While the new guard led most prominently by Bernard Langer and Bernard Gallagher thought the captain should be somebody at the end of their playing career, but much closer to the generation of the stars he'd be managing someone who would be in touch. In other words, and all this was happening in these committee meetings that included British PGA officials and players And they keep ending with no resolution. The argument goes on. 1982 ends. The Ryder Cup is just months away. The young guys are not backing down. And finally, they win. So the day comes in April of 1983, Jacqueline says. Some others put it as late as May of that year. When he's out in the range at Moortown Golf Club in Leeds, he's approached by Ken Schofield, executive director of the New European Tour, and Colin Snape, secretary of the British PGA. And they ask him to be the Ryder Cup captain. By the way, you have to emphasize again that this is five months before the event. Think about that today, when captains are chosen a year and a half at least beforehand. But they drag their feet so much that they barely have time to do anything. Now, Jacqueline told me all of this in an interview down in Florida at his golf course. And later I reread about it again in an article that Bob Herrig at ESPN had written in 2016. And to me and Herrig, in both cases, he used the same expression to describe his reaction when they, when they put that question to him. You could have knocked me down with a feather. To say this is a shock is a huge understatement. We already know Jacqueline was done after the events of 81. He didn't like them. He assumed they didn't like him that much either. He knew they considered him kind of a whiner. So this invitation didn't just come out of the blue. It was the absolute last thing he would have expected. And at first, he didn't know what to do. One thought he had originally, a pretty natural thought was to tell them to get lost. On some level, probably that would have been satisfying. A little bit of revenge for everything that had happened to him. But on another level, the idea excited him. If, and this is a big if, only if he could do it on his terms. So that day at Moortown, he told him he'd think about it. And He goes home and he turns it over in his head. So let's ask that question. What does it mean to Tony Jacklin to do it on his terms? Same question he's asking himself that night. Last podcast, I talked a lot about Paul McGinley, and a large part of what made him great was his tactical mind, the strategies that went into play to form good pairings, to kind of befuddle the Americans, and all the intricate planning that he engaged in. Well, it's different for Jacqueline, and it's different because McGinley, by 2014, already had all the logistical support he needed in place. Money's not an issue. Facilities are not an issue. Nothing like that. So he has the freedom and the time, of course, to go really deep into tactics Jacqueline's not going to get that deep, not this time, because he's tasked not with continuing a successful template, but of inventing one. Again, he is face to face with the blunt side of history. He's got to push back and he's got to do it fast. And what he wants to do, if you reduce it to its simplest version, is he wants to make this about the players. He wants to make it comfortable for them, pleasant for them, easy for them. He wants them to be treated by the same standards that the Americans are treated. You remember the quote I said before about how he felt like a second-class citizen, a lamb to the slaughter? His shoes are falling apart. Well, all that needs to change, and it needs to change in a big way, or they're never going to be successful. He knows that. So he goes to a friend's house for the night, and he thinks about it, and he decides that he's going to go in and ask for a few things. First, they've got to travel on the Concord, the supersonic jet. Second, they had to have good clothes. It's hard to overestimate how much the shoe incident from 75 sticks in Jacqueline's mind, even today, to the point that the friend he stayed with remembers him talking about it over and over at night, the shoes. Next, they should be able to take their caddies free of charge, which amazingly had not been the case until then in the American Ryder Cups. He also wanted a team room. That's a really big one. He has a lot of memories from his playing days of captains pulling them into these dank, sweaty locker rooms giving them the pairings, maybe a short speech, and then they're all off on their own. And he knows that's no way to build team chemistry or team spirit. And he wants food there in these team room and drinks. So nobody has to go anywhere else. And finally, on a strategic note, he wants three captain's picks. So he goes to meet Snape and Schofield again, and he comes in with this attitude of, here are my demands. If you don't like it, fine, I walk. And it almost sounds, when you hear him talk about it today, like he knew in his head he had a good idea of how this was going to go. They were never going to agree. It was going to be too much that he asked for. He wouldn't compromise. They wouldn't compromise. It would be all over before it started. That's how it was destined to end. And then something funny happened as he started reeling off these demands. They said yes to everything. And that took the wind out of his sails because he wasn't expecting it. He actually left the meeting wishing he'd asked for more. Like maybe he should have asked for four captain's picks. And at the end of talking to these guys, the fire in him is completely extinguished because he's got no more demands. They keep saying yes. And at the end, there's nothing to do but to say yes right back to accept a job. And it's amazing because they were as good as their word, even on the hard things, the things that cost a lot of money which was something they weren't exactly swimming in at the time. By the way, the European Tour, still not swimming in money. They make the most of their money from the Ryder Cup. But then, especially compared to the Americans, the British PGA, the European Tour, they don't have much. Snape, who's the British PGA secretary, you know, he, he has to get this Concord going. So what he does, he gets creative. He manages to get 50 wealthy superfans to fund the Concord for them. They buy it, basically, and in exchange for that, they get to fly with the team, take a few pictures, stuff like that. On the clothes front, they go to this company called Austin Reed, which is really high quality. It's funny now because Austin Reed doesn't do it for free for the European Ryder Cup team, but they do cut them a deal. So there's not going to be any more shoe mishaps that Jacqueline has to obsess over. Captain's picks are also a yes. He gets all three, but there's a little asterisk there, which is that it's too late to implement a whole new system before 83. So he does get his captain's picks, but he's not going to get them till 1985. As far as the team room, Jacqueline goes as far as traveling to Florida, to meet Nicholas, who's going to be the American captain that year. Together, they scout out the facilities to make sure, you know, Jacqueline's going to have everything he needs. And on that trip, he finds his team room. Things were changing. And if there's something remarkable here, it's how fast it changes. Almost seems like it's overnight. And for a culture and a sport that puts a really high value on tradition, looking back, it almost seems pretty radical. Maybe radical is actually too radical a word, but... You have to remember that this is an organization that, as it pertains to the Ryder Cup, the British PGA, has been making bad decisions for years now. Bad captains, bad leadership, no sense of the bigger picture of what it's going to take on an infrastructure level to change things, no real plan on how to put themselves in a position to beat the Americans, and then in 1983, it's like, boom, snap your fingers, now there's total commitment. The dysfunction is gone almost overnight, and they're making all the right decisions. And when the right decisions are tough, they don't say no. They say, okay, we recognize this is the right decision. How do we think outside the box to afford it, to get it done? And there's an obvious question here. Why? Why is this happening? First, of course, you have to give credit to Nicholas because he is the stature to approach the Sky Lord Darby. And when he says things have to change, it's not just a suggestion. There's actually an implied threat in it. As in, if you choose not to change it, we're all going to be like Tom Coffin and find an excuse not to be there to go hunting or whatever. So yes, the Europeans choose Tony Jacklin and he becomes the engine of this train. But let's not forget that somebody had to say yes to him to say yes to the players clamoring for him. So it has to come from somewhere higher. And by 1983, guys like Lord Darby and Colin Snape are desperate because even they make a lot of revenue from the Ryder Cup. And if that goes away, it just seems like it might. They are in serious financial trouble. They transitioned into the European era, pushed by Nicholas, but now they need to do more just to save the institution itself. And suddenly, doing something radical like this, like giving a disgruntled 38-year-old Jacqueline the captaincy and almost total power, well, it doesn't seem so radical anymore. Seems like it's maybe your best shot, even if they don't particularly like the guy. And this is a funny thing about the story of 1983, because when you're me and you envision making a Ryder Cup podcast like this one, you think you're going to talk about all the on-course drama, the shots and the putts that decide the outcome, and here we are, however many minutes, probably almost 50 minutes into this, and we haven't said a thing about that. Why? Well, because I really don't want to rush past this turning point in golf history, which is, and you can laugh, but it's largely about a series of meetings. sounds bureaucratic, I know, it sounds boring, but these meetings are absolutely momentous, they determine the future of the Ryder Cup. It's not the most sexy thing to talk about, but they're more important in their way than anything that ever happened on the course. So what meetings have we talked about? Well, again, Jack Nicholas with Lord Darby, 77, saying things got to change, precipitated a letter he sent to him. The three-person committee where they banned Seve Ballesteros, ensuring that 81 is going to be a disaster. Then the player committee meetings afterward with Gallagher and Longer pushing for a younger captain, the meeting at the Moortown driving range where Snape and Schofield offer the job to Jacqueline and the meeting after where he makes his demands and accepts that job. We said it earlier. If the Ryder cup is meaningful to you today, if you value the competitiveness and the drama of it, know that it exists in its current form because of these meetings between 77 and 83, which actually transform everything, which really almost shoves it into the modern era. And the modern era is so much better in so many ways than what came before. And there's one more meeting that we have to talk about. Right as Jacqueline accepts the job, this figure, Lord Darby, who's president of the British PGA, he's hanging around wondering how it went. He's anxious, but he's also cousin of Queen Elizabeth II, and he can't get his hands dirty by asking Jacqueline to take the captaincy directly. So he has his guys do it. And they have a complicated relationship, Darby and Jacqueline, because later they're going to fight over how Ryder Cup funds are allocated And Jacqueline's really going to piss him off majorly by arguing that players should get more. Of course they should. And he eventually wins that argument to this day. Jacqueline suspects that maybe it was Lord Darby who stood in the way of him getting a knighthood. He had his OBE. That's the order of the British empire in 1970. Then a CBE in 1990. That's another slightly higher title, but never a knighthood. And in conversations with me, he called Lord Darby a pompous geezer. So (laughs) you can see they weren't great friends. But a lot of that drama happened afterward, and Darby was quite glad, actually, in 83 that Jacqueline accepted the job. I think probably he seems like a smart guy, and he probably had a sense Jacqueline was going, to, was going to do well. And they spoke after that meeting, and Jacqueline said to him, what about Seve? And Darby said, well, you've accepted the job. He's your problem now. Which brings us to that last meeting, Prince of Wales Hotel in Southport, England, it's within two weeks of Jacqueline accepting the job. It might be as soon as a week later. And he knows that one of his most important tasks is to get Sevi on board after the debacle in 1981. So they were going to play the Open that summer in Southport near there. Seve happened to be playing an event there that week. So they met up. And here's how Jacqueline described that breakfast to me. Quote, He vented. And I said, well, you know, I agree with every bloody thing you said. They're all a pain in the ass, but I'm in charge. We do what we want, and I can't do it without you. I've accepted the job, but without you, we're not going to be competitive. And the eggs are getting cold, and in the end, he said, okay, I help you. And that was basically history after that, end quote. There are some other good quotes from other sources about that meeting. In the book by Pew and Lord, they talk about how Jacqueline... Tells him that succeeding in the Ryder couple helped his image in the UK. In Bob Herrig's story at ESPN, Herrig says he was a very proud guy and he was angry. Felt he had been slighted. That's Jacqueline talking about Sevi. Jacqueline says, I said we're not going to be in the back of the bus anymore. They've promised me the best of everything. And there's a postscript in a Reuters article that I particularly like right after Seve agrees where Jacqueline says, and my God, once he committed, he was unbelievable. And that will be the last of these critical meetings we talk about. The culmination of all of them, the end result, is that you've got Tony Jacklin as captain with about as much freedom as anyone has ever had in his role. And on the player's side, you've got the guy sitting across from him at that breakfast table in the Prince of Wales Hotel, Seve Ballesteros. He's angry, he's uncertain that morning, but he's going to become the greatest rider cupper of them all. And with those pieces in place, those two pieces... When you look at this a certain way, before they even set foot in Florida, before anyone on either side even knew it, in that moment when Sevi agreed to join, the 50-year reign of the Americans had just come to an end. We haven't talked much about the Americans yet. I think if I were writing this story as a novel, if it was fiction, it would almost be better if they were totally cocky, totally confident, and were stunned at what happened to them in eighty three. Kick the Euro's butts in 79 and 81, going to do it again. It would be more poetic that way, maybe. But it wasn't the case. In fact, to their credit, they didn't know how bad it was going to become, but they did seem to understand almost exactly what was going to happen in 83. Here's a quote from Ben Crenshaw that sums up their perspective nicely. He says, we knew, even if the rest of America didn't, that we were going to have to play our absolute best golf if we were going to keep the cup. Nicholas, the American captain, felt the exact same way, and Curtis Strange, who was a rookie that year, later said that sure, while it was a surprise, a big one, exactly how good this core of Europeans became, they all knew that 1983 was not going to be like 1981 or 1979. American team was very good. Maybe not as great as it had been two years earlier, but you've got Tom Watson, probably the best player in the world at that point, who had won three majors in the last two years. You had Raymond Floyd, the 82 PGA Championship winner, You had an absolute killer in Lanny Watkins. You had Ben Crenshaw, Tom Kite, who comes in 6-1-1 in his Ryder Cup career. That's to name the best of them. But there's something interesting, too, where because of a strange selection criteria, they don't get Hal Sutton, who just won the PGA Championship because he had only been on tour for three years. Sounds kind of stupid, right? We don't have that anymore. And another guy who wasn't there is Larry Nelson, who you may remember... Has had incredible success at the Ryder Cup, won the U.S. Open that year in 83, but doesn't make the top 11 of the points list. And at the time, there were no captain's picks for the Americans, so they can't do anything about it. But based on what we know about Nelson and what we learned about Sutton, leaving these guys out means they're missing two really key members of their team. And who do they have instead? Well, they've got Jay Hawes, Craig Stadler, Calvin Pete, Bob Gilder. You probably know these names, you may have heard them, but they're not sort of the headliners. They're not the guys you're necessarily dying to see on the tee when you need to point. Worse, they're all rookies. So this is a top-heavy team, and once you get past that pretty fearsome top line, there are weaknesses. Same is true on the European side. Remember... Jacqueline wins his argument about captain's picks, but it's too late to implement in 83. So they're just using the order of merit. Don't have any captain's picks. And it's not until 85 that he's going to get his three. But even without them, you're starting to see the European wave come on. You've got Seve. You've got Langer. You've got Canizares from Spain. And among the UK guys, you've got Sam Torrance and a couple guys who will go on to win majors. And Sandy Lyle, a rookie named Ian Woosnam. Plus, you have your veteran and Bernard Gallagher, who has a winning record, which is no easy feat if you're a European at that time. And Nick Faldo, still just 26, but already 7-3 in Ryder Cup play. On the other hand, just like the Americans, you have some English golfers that aren't necessarily going to inspire fear, like Brian Waits and Paul Way and Gordon Brand. You've also got Ken Brown in the mix, the guy who behaved so badly in 79 and who Jacqueline probably doesn't like too much. So he does send him out four times out of five sessions, and Brown goes a respectable two and two. But if you're looking for a moment where you can say of the European team, "Okay, the cavalry is here. This is when things change." I don't know, based on the lineup, that 83 is it. Maybe it's 85 or 87 when the really good teams start to form. But this is more like a transitional year. Still, we can't ignore how improved they are and what a difference even just having Langer and Sevi means. Yet it's interesting because we know, we know that Jacqueline has five major winners on that team when you look at it today, but only one of them, Sevi, had won by eighty-three. So even the best guys, the guys that we now recognize as the best, were unseasoned, hadn't quite put that exclamation mark on their careers just yet. So this isn't Jacqueline's perfect team either. You look at the rosters both at the time and with hindsight, and it looks like an incredibly hard Ryder Cup to predict. America's at home and has that long history of winning, so they're slightly favored, but you already can start to see that European mind for strategy, the one we're so familiar with today, starting to creep in. We talked about how Jacqueline's main role is making his players feel like a million dollars, getting them the best of everything, and even got his wife in on it to make the spouses feel part of the process, but that doesn't mean he's neglecting nuts and bolts tactics totally. He's got a lot of ideas about pairings, and a lot of those ideas are psychological in nature, and he's only going to use guys who are playing well. In fact, he tells one of his players, Gordon Brand, that he's not even going to play until singles. By the way, that idea has largely been discredited at this point as an effective strategy, thanks in part to Mark James, who tried the same thing at Brookline and watched everyone he benched to that point get annihilated on that brutal Sunday when the Americans came back, and Gordon Brand, too, is going to end up losing in singles after sitting the whole weekend. But anyway... Jacqueline doesn't know any of this at the time. And the point is, it all shows that he's thinking outside the box. He's willing to try new things and fail if necessary. Nicholas, on the other hand, was committed to getting his players equal playing time. And that's sort of an interesting paradox because we said earlier that he and his players are ready for a competitive fight. But knowing it's coming and doing something about it, actually preparing for it, are a little different. And I think there's no way you can avoid that, that sort of complacency. Even if you sense the winds of history changing after decades of completely obliterating your opponent, you're not going to be able to instantly flip that switch and treat it like a dogfight, even though you think it might be a dogfight. The metaphor here would be to a prize fighter, a boxer who maybe obliterates his opponents in the first 10 fights of his career, but in the 11th he gets hit and he gets hit hard. You don't know how that boxer is going to respond in that moment, but you can be sure that how he planned to respond doesn't really matter. Because this is unfamiliar ground, and if he's attempted to deal with a concept at all in the past, he's had to deal with it theoretically. And to jump ahead, a good example of all this comes on Sunday, when Nicholas and Jacqueline exchange their singles lineups, where traditionally, to this point in Ryder Cup history, all the good players for both teams are at the back of the lineup. And Nicholas sees what Jacqueline has done, and he sees to his chagrin that he's gone and put Sevi Ballesteros, Nick Faldo, and Bernard Langer as his top three players, his first three and Nicholas actually says out loud, you can't do that, which is funny in a modern context, but he's steeped in tradition in this idea of what the Ryder Cup is and what it should be. And that idea is inevitably colored by all the success the Americans have had and how inferior their opponents have always been. And being stuck in that mindset allows Jacqueline to sort of shock him with this unconventional tactic that in fact doesn't look very unconventional today. So fixed was Nicholas in the mentality of decades of how the Ryder Cup should work that it never even occurred to him to think, okay, how might Jacqueline try to screw me over here? What tactics might he use to level the playing field? Thus, he couldn't anticipate this. Kind of reminds you of hearing Revolutionary War stories where the British are all lined up in an open field in their red coats, prepared to do battle. And all of a sudden, the Americans jump out of ditches at them, attack them at the back of their lines, and then run away before they can figure out what's happening. And the British are thinking, what is this? This is not how you fight a war. That's kind of where Nicholas is. He respects the opponent, but he's not quite ready to fight them on their terms yet. But Jacqueline, the underdog, is compelled to be clever because they've been fighting the Americans on an open field for years, and it hasn't gone well. Necessity is the mother of invention. And from Nicholas's perspective, there's no need to change anything where there's no necessity, there's no invention. This, I think, is very forgivable in 1983. The fact that it's still happening 30 years later, 40 years later, as we explored in the first episode about 2014, a little bit ridiculous, a little bit embarrassing, but in 1983, you can't really expect much more of Nicholas. Maybe if he was a genius, maybe then you could. And he is a genius, but his genius is in playing the game. And maybe you could argue he's a genius in his vision about what golf and the Ryder Cup should be, maybe even his vision designing courses later. But as he's going to prove a few times, he's not a genius as a captain, not a genius as a motivator or a leader necessarily, and he's not prepared for Jacqueline. By the way, he'll get another shot in 87, and he still won't be prepared. We saw this with Britain, and we see it again with America, that for whatever reason, it's very hard to turn the ship of state around in the Ryder Cup if you've been losing for a long time. Not just that, but it seems hard to even learn simple lessons. Maybe that has something to do with human nature. Maybe it's specific to golf, which is by nature a more conservative sport where things change slowly. I don't know. But whatever the reason, inertia is very real and very, very difficult to overcome. Let's talk about Sevi Ballesteros. It's funny today how in America, at least from where I'm sitting, we associate Sevi with the Ryder Cup most of all. On one hand, it does make sense. He was great. On another, my God, this is a five-time major champion. This is the first European to win the Masters. Other than Gary Player, he's the first non-American to win the Masters. Hell, he's probably the greatest European golfer ever. Top five at minimum. If Tony Jacklin is the guy who sort of planted the first flag in America as a player, the first guy to come over and make a huge impact on the PGA Tour, Seve's the evolution of that. The guy who stands on Jacklin's shoulders and does even better. In his obituary in the Washington Post, he died too young of cancer. There's this quote from Peter Kessler, who is very much gone off the deep end if you follow golf Twitter at all, but who has an encyclopedic knowledge of history. I think even his detractors wouldn't argue with that. Here's how he described it. Quote, but he, Seve, never felt like he got the love he deserved. He played with a chip on his shoulder. He just wanted to be one of the guys with the Americans, but they all thought he was coming in and taking money right out of their pockets. End quote. Sounds a lot like we heard earlier about Tony Jacklin, doesn't it? And by the way, if you thought American golfers didn't like Jacklin playing their country on their tour, well, guess what? Tony Jacklin has an accent, but he speaks their language and his skin is the same color as their skin. How do you think they'll respond to someone with darker skin who speaks a different language and who, by the way, is hardly a deferential personality who is, in fact, a very intimidating guy who isn't afraid to play psychological games of his own? Now, let's put this in context before we even get going. I'm not saying Seve Ballesteros is Jackie Robinson. Not even close. He's still European, so I don't even know if the word racist even applies. Not my area of expertise. And in fact, if you want to do research on it, you can find a heck of a lot more examples of American crowds loving him for his style and for the excitement he brought to the game than you can of racism. So let's not manufacture a narrative that wasn't there. Let's be careful on that front. However, I will say that as late as 2007, an RNA rules official named Graham Brown came under fire for making a series of racist jokes about Asians and African Americans during a dinner speech. But it's funny to note the first line in the AP story about it. Quote, a royal and ancient rules official started his dinner speech with a fantastic impersonation of Sevi Ballesteros, which segued to a series of racial and ethnic jokes. End quote. So clearly, Brown felt comfortable imitating Sevi's Spanish accent. And the AP thought it was fine, too, according to them. The racist stuff came later. And there's another story, too, that Sam Torrance tells about a press conference at this 83 Ryder Cup where an American journalist keeps calling him Steve instead of Seve, adds a T in there, and he persists even after he's been corrected. So it's kind of a pointed, targeted thing. Apparently, that wasn't uncommon in American galleries either. And then there's a more overt story where an announcer at a tournament, not a fan, but one of the player announcers, Steps out as Sevi approaches the T and says, let's give the little, and here he says a racial epithet that starts with SP, probably even though it's a historical record, probably doesn't behoove me to say it. Let's give the little blank a big hand. What do you call that? Is it racism, xenophobia? Whatever, whatever way you want to describe it, it's definitely disrespectful. And again, I don't really want to dwell on this, but the point is that he's an outsider even more than Jacqueline. He's treated as such. And even with the love of the fans, he often feels homesick in America, and you can understand why. And by the way, all this is compounded in 1980 at a U.S. Open when he misses his tee time and gets DQ'd. And again, later on in the 80s, when he starts that feud we talked about with the PGA Tour, because they're asking him to play 15 tournaments to retain his membership. He thinks that's way too much. Dean Beeman and the Tour stripped him of his membership for playing too few events, and it became this long, intense feud that was never really resolved. And for what it's worth, the requirements are much less strict today. But Sevi never lacked for enemies. Bernard Gallagher once said, quote, Seve needed to feel that the world was against him. He wanted to lead, to beat people. John Hopkins, a British writer and an excellent feature at Global Golf Post, had a wonderful line. He wrote, "You never needed to tell Ballesteros there were dragons around the corner. He knew. But the remarkable thing about Sevi is that none of this changes him. To call him larger than life is just sort of a limp description that doesn't do him justice. The more you read about this guy, the more you see certain qualities that you have seen reflected only in other great athletes. He's got Michael Jordan's ability to hold grudges. And in a memoir he wrote in 2007 before he died, he's just full of complaints for everyone who ever wronged him. Kind of like Jordan in his Hall of Fame speech, if if you've seen that. And instead tough, and as a professional golfer, he's a bit of a long shot from the start. Here's the first paragraph of a different John Hopkins story about where Seve comes from. Quote, the house was humble, far from grand, and centered on a small holding in the village of Pedreña, near Santander on the northwest coast of Spain. Chickens pecked and clucked in the ground outside. A donkey was tethered nearby. Rabbits scurried around. In such inauspicious circumstances, Severiano Ballesteros, the youngest of five sons, one of whom died age two from a wasp's sting, was born on 9 April, 1957, end quote. So here you got a guy who was raised in relatively humble conditions. Again, please notice the parallel to Tony Jacklin. Humble, especially by professional golf standards. He's the son of a farmer in small fishing villages. He's born with a defect that made his right shoulder hang lower, became a boxer as a kid. He learned golf by hitting on the beaches of his hometown. And as an adult, he's the kind of guy who slept with a 38 revolver under his pillow. Didn't even have access to a real golf course until he was until he was 12. So he and his brothers would sneak on to their local course to play after hours. And he got really good, which is an obvious statement. It's not a big surprise because his family actually has a terrific golfing pedigree. And in fact, his uncle, Ramon Soda, was probably the best golfer in Spain when Sevi was a kid. And all Sevi's surviving brothers became pro golfers too. And in fact, when you ask the question of what motivated Seve... What made him so ambitious, and particularly when it came to beating the Americans in the Ryder Cup, the answer might lie with his uncle Ramon, who once finished sixth at the Masters. Here's what Manuel Pinero, a contemporary of Seve's, had to say about that. Quote, His uncle Ramon Soda was a great player. Seve wouldn't admit he learned a lot from Ramon, but I think Ramon was the first master in that part of the world. Ramon always talked about Arnold Palmer and Nicklaus and that the Americans were unbeatable. It was impossible for him to beat them, even though he was a fantastic player. Sevy wanted to show his uncle and his people that he could beat the Americans. He wanted to show that he could do what some people thought was impossible. End quote. It says a lot, doesn't it? By 16, he had quit school and turned pro. Two years later, still a teenager, he shocks everyone by finishing second at the Open Championship and actually led after 54 holes before Johnny Miller tracked him down on the last day. Again, notice the parallel to Jacqueline quitting school, turning pro, finding success very quickly. Sevi becomes known for his creativity and his almost magical short game. And it can be a little hard to explain as the years go on what that means or to understand the magic, even or maybe especially for those of us who didn't grow up watching him play. For those who did, though, there's an aura around the sky. There are a million stories about him can't tell them all we don't have time but I do think it's worth our time to tell one just to give a sense of the flavor of him the real belief people had that there was something perhaps supernatural about Sevy's talent this story comes again from the John Hopkins feature and it's told by a caddy who worked with Sevy for five years named Billy Foster and Billy Foster was on his bag at a tournament in Switzerland when Seve seemed to pull off a miracle on the 18th hole from in front of a wall. Yes, a wall. Here's what Foster says. Quote, he was perhaps 10 feet from the wall, and the wall was 10 feet high. There were fir trees above the wall, and he saw a chink of light in the trees about four feet above the wall. He had half a backswing. Four times I asked Seve to chip it out, wedge it onto the green, and make par that way. I envisaged his ball hitting the wall, rebounding into his face, and killing him, and I'd have no boss and no percentage money. I pleaded with him. My last words to him were, I know you're Seve Ballesteros, but you're not fucking Paul Daniels. Chip it out, will you, please? He refused. And I saw the dust come up from where his club hit the ground and I didn't hear the ball hitting the wall. It went over the wall, through that gap in the trees, over 470 70-foot-high pine trees, about 30 yards short of the green, and landed one yard off the putting surface. Then, guess what happened? He only went and chipped in for birdie, didn't he? I went down on my hands and knees to bow to him. I thought he was God. End quote. And these stories of his magic, of his surreal, inexplicable ability, abound. Consider this there are more than a few people who think Sevi Ballesteros played a significant part in Europe winning the 2012 Ryder Cup, about 16 months after he died. 1979 at age 22 he wins the open championship and he does it while only hitting four fairways in the final ground talk about scrambling talk about a short game the big story there is that he hits his tee shot on the 16th hole into the parking lot still manages to make birdie but here's the crazy part a little bit more of the semi mystique he may have done it on purpose here's the washington post on that moment from the obituary Quote, Mr. Ballesteros led the British Open in the final round with a chance to shut the door on his closest pursuer, Nicholas, if he could make one last birdie down the stretch. Mr. Ballesteros saw his opportunity on the 16th hole. He later said that he did not want to hit the ball straight down the fairway and risk a difficult second shot through raging crosswinds. Instead, Mr. Ballesteros improvised and aimed his drive toward a parking lot where his ball came to rest alongside a white Austin with a wide open view of the green. Mr. Ballesteros birdied the hole and beat Nicholas by three shots to become, at 22, the youngest British Open winner since the late 1800s, End quote. Now, is that true? Or is it something Seve invented later to burnish his legend? Which would not be the first time he's done it. Once, when he changed his swing, he told everyone that he took photos and video of his old swing, went out with his coach, and symbolically burned them in the American desert, which was nonsense, but that Seve... Along with all his magic, he's a myth maker. And examples of this, too, are very common in his career. And knowing him, knowing his inventiveness, his creative genius on the course, it's very believable that he hit a ball into a parking lot on purpose on the 16th hole with a chance to win a major. And it's also very believable, perhaps more so, that he hit a bad drive and made up a good story after the fact. And I kind of like not knowing, because not knowing gets at the mystery of Seve Ballesteros better than having the answer. By the 83 Ryder Cup, he's got that open championship, and he's got two masters, including the one played that April. Everyone knows he's a good player, a world-class player, and though the world rankings as we know them won't start until 1986, they know he's either the best player in the world or very close, perhaps number two behind Tom Watson. But it's important to keep in mind, they don't know that he's a Ryder Cup juggernaut, and the reason they don't know that is because he's not. Not yet. Remember, at this point in his career, his experience with the Ryder Cup has been an utter disaster. It started in 1979 when he gets waxed over and over, loses again four times to Larry Nelson, goes one for four for that event. And You can imagine, knowing what we know about his complicated relationship with America and American golfers, and his penchant for getting angry, you can imagine what that does to him. Then again, 81, as we said, he doesn't play over a money dispute, so coming into 83... He's just a guy with a bad record who hasn't proved anything in this competition yet. And I think those numbers, 1 and 4, are remarkable because do you know how hard it would be for even most very good players to start out 1 and 4 in their Ryder Cup careers and even ever get back to 500? What a monumental uphill climb that would be. It would take years. I can't imagine anyone's done it before. I don't know that for sure, but I'd be shocked. Except for Sevy. You spot him that one in four start, which actually becomes one in five in 1983, and he finishes his career 20, 12, and five. How's that for turning things around? Jacqueline knew it was coming. I like this quote from our interview when he talked about the parallels between himself and Sevi. Quote, you know, I'd done it. I'd come, I'd come and won my major. I'd won at Jack's. I was the first European to win on the PGA Tour, so I was sort of a pioneer. Seve was the same. He won multiple times over here and was a leader. And he had that same outlook. You're not better than I am just because you put USA after your name. As far as any of us were concerned, they hadn't corralled ambition. That's a new mindset. And 1983 is the first time Sevi's going to show exactly what he brings to the table in the Ryder Cup. It's not just about skill and passion, though that's a big part of it. The other thing you have to know about Seve Ballesteros is he's a nudge. And when I say nudge, maybe there's people who don't know or that term or don't use it. It means somebody who irritates you and who does so on purpose. You read a lot of sources that say Seve would cough during a backswing or shuffle his feet or engage in these various forms of gamesmanship. And like everything else about Seve, it's hard to know exactly how much of it is true, how much is myth, how much is American bias. And it's compounded by the fact that his reputation becomes so outsized that Americans almost preemptively start fights with him or take these bad faith approaches to who he is. The ultimate example of which comes in 1991, when Seve and Azinger butt heads over an incident, I'm not going to go into the details of now, do 1991 later, but the upshot is that Azinger and Chip illegally use two different balls, get called out for it, and then get mad at Seve for calling them out, which just shows that where Seve goes in the Ryder Cup, conflict follows. It's not always his fault, but he just creates this force field around himself. But the really remarkable thing about Seve is that if you take, I don't know, 99% of professional golfers or 99% of athletes in any sport, and you tell them to mess with their opponent, it's probably going to mess with them too, which is why they don't do it. I'm always reminded of the Patrick Reed-Rory McIlroy singles match at the Hazeltine Ryder Cup. I was lucky enough to follow that one, and for eight holes, it was one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen in terms of pure intensity. But when it culminated with those two massive putts on the eighth hole, what happened then? Well, they hugged each other at the back of the green, and they laughed. And just like that, the tension of that match was diffused. And they did it on purpose because it was too much. It was too intense. And as wonderful as that was for spectators, both of them knew it wouldn't be good for them to keep it going for 10 more holes. Even two guys like that, two really tough guys, needed to hit the pressure release valve. Well, Seve Ballesteros, doesn't need that valve. He keeps that intensity. He nudges. He holds that almost animosity for his opponent in his heart, and he wins. And believe me when I tell you that nothing pisses off his opponents more than that last fact. It's one thing to practice gamesmanship. You do that, you make yourself the villain to the Americans, okay? That's your style. But when you beat them too, oh, it's infuriating. And there are a million great stories to illustrate this, but my favorite The most exemplary, I think, comes from the 1987 Ryder Cup. I know that's not what we're talking about here, but it's so good that I'm going to use it now. I'll use it again when we do 87. Maybe that's lazy, but I like it too much. This comes again from Robin McMillan's excellent oral history, Us Against Them. And here's Curtis Strange describing a moment from the 87 Ryder Cup against Seve. On the first hole of one match in 1987, I wanted to fucking kill him. I'm playing with Kite. We'd had our rules meeting the day before. Some of that's on sportsmanship and courtesy and playing within the rules. Well, to make a long story short, we discussed having a through line, which means the line of your putt past the hole. You don't want people walking around on your through line, as you could be putting on it if you missed the previous putt long. On the first hole, Sevi had a chip from just off the green. I had a long putt down the hill, and I putted it past the hole. Well, putted, then wanted to putt out, but I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, you can't do that. You're right on my through line. Sevy came charging up. That bother you, he said. That bother you? I said, Yes, that does bother me. And so Sevy stomped over to his chip and chipped it right into the back of the hole, then walked off the green, pumping his fist at me. And I almost had to applaud him. More power to him. God damn, I was so mad I wanted to kill him. End quote. Now how great is that? And I gotta say, kudos to Curtis Strange for his honesty. It's exactly what I mean about Sevy always being ready to stir up trouble, but then he delivers results. And as strange indicates, it's enraging. It's enraging to the Americans. Which brings us now to the actual golf. PGA National Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. Nicholas brings everyone over to his house for dinner one night. They get to look at all his trophies. Sevi's completely in awe. They're probably seeing that on purpose to some degree. And it's funny because Jacqueline's message to his team in their first meeting in Florida is of the check your egos at the door. Nobody's better than anybody else here. Variety Which is maybe a little bit of a contrast to how the Americans operate. And it's definitely a preemptive response to some of the stuff he saw in his own playing career. Then finally, Friday morning comes and it's time to play. And in the morning session, Jacqueline has to decide who's going to play the first match. It's foursomes alternate shot. And he goes with Bernard Gallagher and Sandy Lyle, two of his Scots, two of his veterans. Seems like a good idea but Nicholas counters with Tom Watson and Ben Crenshaw. And because we spent so much time criticizing Watson in our Glen Eagles podcast, when he's a captain, let's acknowledge now that this guy is an absolute stud. When it comes to the Ryder cup as a player, there are three men in American history who played at least 15 matches in their Ryder cup careers and managed to win 70% of them. One is Arnold Palmer who never played in the European era. And the only other two are Hale Irwin and Tom Watson. Now, Watson, strangely, actually only played in four Ryder Cups. He doesn't qualify in 75 when he wins the Open Championship. You know, their system is all screwy then. They don't have captain's picks in America until 1989 when he's selected at age 40, so he also misses 85 and 87. But when he has his chances, he takes them. And he finishes at 10, 4, and 1 for his career. Funny thing is, he hadn't been playing very well in 83. Actually told Nicholas he didn't want to play very often in the Ryder Cup. Nicholas said, too bad. You're my best player. You're intimidating. Not only will you play, you'll play every time. And he did. And he went four and one. As you might guess from those numbers, he and Crenshaw that morning win easily five and four. That's okay, though, because up next for Europe, talk about your all-time greats are Nick Faldo and Bernard Langer. Neither one of them have a major yet. They're playing against Craig Stadler, and they're playing also against the guy who is one of the most feared players on the American side. Lanny Watkins. Here's how Tony Jacklin described Lanny Watkins to me. He said, quote, Watkins was the cockiest son of a bitch you ever met in 10 lifetimes. He'd introduce himself by saying, hi, lunch. He was an arrogant bastard, but in the nicest way, end quote. And Jacklin considers Watkins a friend. (laughs) Imagine what his enemies think. And you talk about Ryder Cup records. Here's a guy in Watkins who finished his career 2011 and three. Billy Casper and Arnold Palmer have more total wins, but pound for pound, considering the era he played in, I don't know how you don't say Watkins is the best American Ryder Cup golfer ever. That's what Faldo and Langer are facing on enemy soil, and are they intimidated? Absolutely not. They win 4-2. Canizares and Torrance give Europe the lead in the third match, and in the last match of Friday morning, it's Seve Ballesteros, partnered with the youngest player on either team, Paul Way. Jacqueline's idea here is that Sevy will be like a father figure in a way who you may not know him today since he didn't fulfill a lot of the promise of his early career, but who was a pretty confident, ready to fight kind of personality. Then even at age 20, a cocky little bugger to quote Jacqueline. So he and Sevy play Tom Kite and Calvin Pete. Wade leaves the putt short in 17 and they lose two and one. So after the first session, the overall match is two to two. Now, in theory, Tony Jacklin could have been in an awkward position with Seve Ballesteros. Basically begged him to play on the team, told him he couldn't do it without him. And by doing that, you make a sacrifice, which is that you sacrifice some of your authority, potentially. You tell someone they're essential, and guess what? You hand them some power. That's how it works. And this is where we get into something a little paradoxical about Seve, because he seems like the kind of person who maybe would demand that respect. Jack Nicholas was, as a player, as a Ryder Cupper. He was known as a little bit of a pain to the captains he played for because he wanted to chime in and he wanted to be listened to and he had an opinion on everything. Felt he deserved it. He maybe did, but it probably didn't always make him the best team player. There's an interesting story where John Jacobs, the European captain in 81 we've talked about, is talking to Dave Marr, the U.S. captain, and he mentions how much trouble he had with Jameson Brown in 79. And Marr says, I only have one difficult one. And Jacob says back, I know who that is, the one who knows everything about everything. And they're talking about Jack Nicholas, sevi a similar kind of strong personality, a similar stature, maybe thinks he deserves that too. And Jacqueline kind of foresees this. And so out of respect for him, he does things like he'll go up and show him the lineup card or he'll seek out his advice on some matter. But every time, Sevi says, no, you do it. You're a great captain, you do it. I don't need to see it. And I love that because... I think it speaks to Sevi's comprehensive sort of ability to see what it takes to win on a very sophisticated level. And maybe he knows intuitively that undermining the captain or even just occupying a special place among the team isn't the way to foster team spirit. And so along with everything else you have with Sevi, here's something surprising, here's something new, humility. And that's why as much as he's hated by the Americans, he's beloved by his countrymen, his teammates, so much so that if you ask a lot of them about him today, as Hopkins did in his story, they still break down in tears talking about him. He's beloved in a way someone like Nicholas never is. Which is partly why Jacqueline paired him with Paul Way, because if Seve had his druthers, he would have played with his countryman, Jose Maria Canizares, and he's actually a little upset after that loss on Friday morning. Keep in mind, he's now 1-5 in five for his career in the Ryder Cup, because he feels like he's being asked to be a parent instead of a player. And they spoke together, Sevy and Jacqueline. And Sevi said, I feel like his father. And Jacqueline pointed right to Sevy's head and said, you are his father, Sevy. You are in here. That's exactly why you're bloody well paired together. Is that a problem? Now, imagine someone saying that to Nicholas. Probably wouldn't happen. But Jacqueline says it to Sevy, And Sevy just says, no, 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 no. It's not a problem. He kind of got it at that point. And guess what? Seve and Paul Wade didn't lose again in three more matches. Okay, so Friday afternoon comes. It's four ball. Brian Waits and Ken Brown get a win. Tom Watson strikes back for the Americans with Jay Haas by beating Faldo and Langer. And then Seve gets just his second win of his Ryder Cup career, one up with Paul Way against Raymond Floyd and Curtis Strange, where he makes birdie on the par 5 18th to win it. Sam Torrance and e- Ian Woosnam play a terrific match against Crenshaw and Pete that ends in a half. Woosnam, in particular, is great on the back nine, even though he describes literally shaking from nerves on the first tee. And when Friday comes to an end, something really remarkable has happened. For only the second time ever, Europe has the lead after the first day on American soil. One thing you can't control in a Ryder Cup is luck. As we said earlier, ask Davis Love and Medina about that. In a tight match, you need some breaks, and on Saturday morning for the first time that weekend, there's an indication that the Europeans aren't going to be very lucky in 83. Waits and Brown go out first in four ball. They take a three-up lead, but Lanny Watkins is Lanny Watkins. He and Stadler come roaring back. They win one up when Stadler chips in from 25 feet on 18. Pretty lucky. Byasteros and Way also lose the lead, but Sevy manages to work his magic on 18, chipping to three feet from over the green to win the hole and salvage a half. Faldo and Langer win easily, which is interesting because Langer had asked to rest, and Jacqueline, showing his instinct for reading people, says basically the same thing Jack Nicholas had said to Tom Watson, which is absolutely not. Speaking of Watson, he and Bob Gilder win five and four over Torrance and Wosenham. The Americans win the session, and now it's 6-6, all tied up. Keep in mind that as this thing ends 14-all, the Americans retain the cup because they had won in 81, so that's like a victory. Tie isn't good enough for Europe. Afternoon comes, and we're back to alternate shot. Faldo and Langer win again. That's three of four for them, a brilliant showing. Good thing Jaclyn didn't sit him. Torrance and Canizares get absolutely smashed by Lanny Watkins and Gil Morgan. Waits and Brown get beat by Haas and Strange, and the most intriguing match of the session... Is Tom Watson and Bob Gilder against Seve Ballesteros and Paul Way? Remember, Watson hasn't lost yet. But together, the father Seve and his son Way are tremendous. They get out to a big lead and hold on for a 2 and one win. Saturday ends, and the score is eight to eight. Nicholas gives a fiery speech to his guys, tells them to show me some brass, because he really doesn't want to be the first American captain to lose in America. Sevy in the European room is giving shoulder massages. Both teams are aware this is going to be on TV on Sunday. It's only two hours, which seems incredible to us today. But for them, it was incredible for different reasons. Two hours were a big deal. And it's all lining up for a dramatic finish, an unprecedented finish, maybe. And when the lineups are exchanged for that Sunday, we get that great moment when Jacqueline stacks his best players in the front. Nicholas is aghast. He says, you can't do that. And it looks like maybe, just maybe, Europe has an advantage. I like this quote uh, from Fuzzy Zeller, who had a bad back that week. And it's about the lineup. And when he found out that, lo and behold, he just drew Sevi Ballesteros in the number one spot. Although I should say that it comes from David Faraday's Writer Cup book. And it's impossible to tell when Faraday and his co-writer are just making something up for fun. So this could be fictional completely. But a lot of quotes are real in that book. And I like this Anyway. So with that caveat, here's the possible quote from Zeller. Quote, I told Jack to put me out first because I figured Jacqueline would put out one of his cripples there too. Imagine my surprise. I started popping painkillers as soon as I learned. Thank goodness they don't give your analysis to golfers. My eyes were spinning. End quote. I hope it's real. Anyway, let's say something about this match up front because if you're looking for a moment where Sevy begins to lay the first bricks of the building that is going to become his Ryder cup legend. It happens here and it happens on the 18th hole. And that's, what's going to be remembered about this match. But let's say first that he should have won without a problem. Fuzzy Zeller ends up getting a half point here and it's a heroic half point. It's a critical half point, especially considering his condition and who he's up against. And by the way, Zeller is a miserable match play player finishes one, eight, one in his career in the Ryder cup. So how on earth, does he forge a draw with Sevi? Pretty amazing, and I think that deserves to be said before we talk about the shot. So Sevi wants the big win in this match. Of course, he's the first golfer out. He wants to set the tone, and he thinks he's going to get it when he establishes a three-up lead with just seven holes to play. But somehow Zeller wins four straight holes, and suddenly Sevi has to drain a 20-foot birdie on 16 just to get back to all square. He makes it, and they're still tied when they come to the long 18th, the par 5, where Seve hooks his drive into thick rough and can only push his second shot maybe 20 yards into a fairway bunker 250 yards from the hole. And with the lip of the bunker right in front of them, he does something that his contemporaries describe as completely insane, which is he takes out his three-wood. And he proceeds to astound everyone by picking the ball clean and somehow, some way hitting it all the way to the green. Some people think it's the greatest shot in Ryder Cup history, considering the context. Bernard Langer says that it's the greatest shot he ever experienced. Nicholas echoes him almost exactly. He said, it was the greatest shot I ever saw. And it has grown in myth because it was not on TV. They were airing covers that day, but they didn't cover the first match. So now we can only imagine what that shot was like. But we're lucky to have a great description from John Hopkins, the British writer who was there and who saw the shot live. Here's what he wrote quote. I was lucky enough to be 20 yards behind by when he hit that three wood from a bunker on the 18th hole at Palm beach garden in his singles match against fuzzy Zeller in the 83 Ryder cup. And as soon as I realized how daring a shot he was attempting shivers ran up and down my spine, the ball came out of the bunker, barely disturbing a grain of sand bent 30 yards in the air and ended by the side of the green. That was unquestionably the most thrilling shot I have ever seen, and I never expect to see another like it. End quote. Zeller, to his credit, actually responds with a great shot of his own. Both of them make par, and the match ends in a half. Again, brilliant from Sevi, unforgettable, and maybe the start of his Ryder Cup legend, but a pretty great half from Zeller, too, in a match where the Europeans needed and should have had a win. In the next two matches, Jacqueline's gambit pays off in a big way, with Nick Faldo and Bernard Langer winning narrow matches against Jay Haas and Gil Morgan. And for a moment, the Europeans have a lead on Sunday. But then the weak part of the European lineup comes up, with Gordon Brand playing his first match of the whole event, Sandy Lyle, Brian Waits, and they get beat by Gilder, Crenshaw, and Pete. Paul Way wins again, finishes a spectacular Ryder Cup with a 2-1 win against Curtis Strange, Torrance halves against Tom Kite, And by the way, Kite makes him putt an extremely short putt on 18 for the half. Has to be less than a foot. You can see that on YouTube. Stadler beats Woosnam. Brown absolutely dominates Raymond Floyd. And with two matches left on the course, everything's tied. 13 to 13. And the last matches are close. First one is Jose Maria Canizares against Lanny Watkins. And just like Seve against Zeller, Canizares is, is up three, seven holes to play pretty good lead a really good lead not insurmountable but getting close Watkins being Watkins greatest U.S. Ryder Cup ever arguably he chips away at that but he's still one down coming to the 18th hole Europe wins this they get to 14 points and I think what happens to Ken on 18 needs to be related from his perspective verbatim again from McMillan's oral history In the last match with Lenny Watkins, I was three up with seven to play and was playing good golf. On the 18th hole, a par five with water on the right of the green, I was one up and hit a very good drive and a very good second shot. Nobody had come out to watch me, but suddenly everybody comes out. Win the match, we win the Ryder Cup. Sevi asked me, why didn't you hit the green? I said, I have 105 yards or 110 yards left, and that position is in a very, very difficult place in the left corner. I have an easy pitching wedge. And then Stevie said, you are one up, you go to the green, you make par. And then that hurt my confidence and changed my game. Then I hit a sandwich a little short in the big grass. Watkins hit a very good shot and made a birdie just like that. And that evened the match. That is for me very, very angry. Maybe it was my fault that we did not win because maybe I lost my concentration. I was very angry. End quote. In David Faraday's Ryder Cup book, he describes Watkins' shot as follows. The rotten, black-hearted little turd then hit the shot of the week, a pitch that stopped 18 inches from the hole. And what's pretty cool about that shot, and you can find that one on YouTube, is that right after he hits, Lanny Watkins, that beautiful pitch, right after he hits, there's a flash of lightning in the sky behind him. That's Watkins, who Jacqueline, remember, called the cockiest son of a bitch you ever met in 10 lifetimes, just being himself. After the match, Jack Nicholas would go out and literally kiss the divot from where he'd hit the shot. The next year, at a different tournament, they gave him a golden wheelbarrow in honor of something Nicholas apparently said after that shot, which was to the effect of, This guy's balls are so big, they need to be carried around in a wheelbarrow. And that was his nickname for Watkins, born on that day, wheelbarrow. So that match ends in a half, 13.5 to 13.5. And you think, why did Sevy say that to Ken Azzaris? Why then? This guy who we know has such a great instinct for winning, it really seems like the opposite of what he would do. Why criticize him after he already made his choice and, in fact, had a pretty good shot at the green? Why shatter this guy's confidence just before the end? Kind of strange, again, very much not in line with what we know about how good he is with teammates. And He's not around to defend himself, so it's all a little speculative at this point, but a strange kind of mystery there. And the final match is Bernard Gallagher, who had barely played all week because he had the flu, against Tom Watson, the American hero. Gallagher fought hard, and on the 17th of par 3, he hits what Sam Torrance describes as the best shot of his life, but it's a half club too many, and the ball runs over the green. He and Watson both made a mess of the 17th after that, but Watson made his bogey to win the hole, which left Gallagher with a 3-foot bogey to stay one down. Keep in mind, though, that at this point, it's over. Even if Gallagher makes it, the best he can do is win 18 and get a half point, and that means it's a 14-14 tie. So technically, Watson's chip for par that gets close and gets conceded for bogey is the winning shot. Nevertheless, Gallagher misses his short bogey putt, and the match ends 2-1. And and the final score is 14.5-13.5 for the Americans. It's almost impossible to describe the level of disappointment the Europeans felt at that moment, having come so close to accomplishing something unbelievable, something unprecedented. In the end, even though it felt different, even though they had bonded together in the team room, even though everything about this Ryder Cup was more comfortable, more pleasant, more inspiring than ever before, in the end, it was the same result, the Americans win. You can imagine that a sense of dark inevitability settles over them at that moment and hovers as they march back to their team room. And then something amazing happens, and there are a lot of people who tell the story. Pretty much anyone who is there on Team Europe has their own version. But my favorite is from Nick Faldo. Here's his description of what happened in the team room at that moment. We were all there feeling down and dejected. Half of us felt we should have won, and the other half were not sure. At that point, in marches Sevi. He had his fists clenched and his teeth were bared, just like he is when he's excited, and he kept marching around the room saying to everyone, this is a great victory, a great victory. Then he said, we must celebrate, and he turned the whole mood of the team around. That was the spark, Seve in 1983. By 1985, we knew we could do it. Give you one more, here's how Sam Torrance put it. Quote, Sunday night at Palm Beach, he was extraordinary. He being Sevy, he made us all, even Langer, shout out, We will beat them. He had tears streaming down his face. It was ridiculous the amount of emotion that was shown. He said, Don't cry when we lose, cry when we win. We are going to beat them. At the start of this podcast, in the intro, there's a quote from Sam Torrance in his wonderful deep Scottish brogue where he says, we all swore that Sunday night we will be coming back. We will be coming back. We will beat them in 85. We will beat them in 85. Make no mistake, the reason he felt that way, the reason they all felt that way, was because of Sevi Ballesteros and what he said to them in their moments of defeat. It's just another example, as if we needed one, of the man's competitive genius. And Tony Jacklin has a moment where he thinks to himself, what did I do wrong? What could I have done better? And he's honest with himself, he's an honest guy, he's his own biggest critic, and he racks his brain, and he can't think of much. They got unlucky, maybe a few tweaks here and there might have made the difference, but overall, he knew he had made the right decisions. He knew he had set the stage for a very different kind of Ryder Cup. The Americans knew it too. Afterward, Jack Nicholas speaks for everyone when he says, We will not be the favorites when we go to the Belfry in two years. This score was no fluke. Seems obvious now, in hindsight, but for the Americans to understand that there's going to be a Ryder Cup in two years where they're the underdogs, well, when's the last time that happened? The answer is never. That's profound. That's huge. And what he didn't know then, what he couldn't possibly have known, is that if anything, he was underselling it. Maybe it was only Seve and maybe Jacqueline, too, who knew, who understood what had actually happened which is that the wave of American dominance had just crested, had just reached its high-water mark with that victory at PGA National. That wave was going to crash, and it was going to crash before 1985. As the U.S. team celebrated, they were unwittingly looking down the barrel of decades of European control of the Ryder Cup, a period of control that persists to this day. They would lose in '85, and Jack Nicklaus, who so desperately wanted to avoid becoming the first U.S. captain to lose on home soil and escaped it by the skin of his teeth, would be the captain again in 87 at his own course, and this time he wouldn't escape. We've said it before, and we'll say it one last time. Tony Jacklin and Seve Ballesteros stopped history in its tracks in 1983, and pretty soon they were going to reverse it. We don't have much footage of that Sunday in Florida, but imagine if you can the Americans celebrating and imagine if you can Nicholas kissing that Lanny Watkins divot and how they congratulated themselves and shouted and drank as the night wore on as is their right as the victors do that. And with the benefit of time, you might feel a slight pang of pity for them. The Americans would win Ryder cups again here and there, but they would never again be the best team. And I think if you could transport that us team to the present to 2021, or any of those old U.S. teams who won so effortlessly across the decades, and you could show them how things look now, well, you'd have a lot of golfers looking at you going, what the hell happened? And maybe the best way to describe what changed in 1983 is to say that up until that moment, the story of the Ryder Cup had been one kind of story, and that story was about America. Starting that weekend, it became another kind of story, and this one was about Europe almost 40 years later it still is Well, thank you very much for listening to that. Um, I, I know I try your patience in two ways, one of which is that these are very long episodes, the second of which, if you enjoyed them, is that they're spaced very far apart. I think it's been six weeks since I released the last one. These take a little time to write, and other things are happening in life. So, so thank you for indulging both of those time issues. Um, I want to correct four errors that I made in the first episode. Um, the Glen Eagles one. The first one is incredibly silly. I, I said that the duel in the sun between Tom Watson and Jack Nicholas was at St. Andrews. I've written about that a million times. I know it's at Turnberry. I have no idea how St. Andrews not only I wrote it, but then it crossed my lips and I just never kind of the censors never caught it. Uh so that was pretty foolish. Uh obviously, yeah, the duel in the sun at Turnberry. Second one uh, was one I was just plain wrong about and have been wrong about in my head for a very long time, which is that I said the Belfry, the course that has played host to so many Ryder Cups, was in Wales. Uh, If you before that podcast had come and put a gun to my head and said, give you two options, you can back out. Or if you answer, if you answer this question correctly, uh, you get a million dollars. And if you don't, I'm going to pull the trigger. And the question is, where's the Belfry? I might not be here to talk to you right now because I might have been so confident it was in Wales that I took the bet. It's not in Wales. It's in England. That was a mistake. Uh, Third one is pretty minor. It comes from me misreading an interview I did with Tony Jacklin. I referenced at one point that he said that um, John Jacobs was his least favorite captain, the one he thought was the worst captain uh, during his Ryder Cup playing career. And in fact, you know, he had his problems with Jacobs. We got into those uh, during this uh, during this episode. But in fact, it was uh, Brian Huggett who was just before Jacobs that Jacqueline was referring to um, as as his least favorite captain. And he he had a lot of respect for John Jacobs. So that you know, correct that in your minds if you're listening to it. And the fourth and obviously the most egregious mistake is that I didn't thank Ivan Ross, who is the person who put together that um, the opening intro of this podcast with all the quotes from the various Ryder Cup personalities, Ola Thaubel and Sam Torrance and and the announcers and everything like that. Uh, Ian Poulter at the end, he did that against the classical music. So that was really cool. And and I should have said thank you the first time. So Ivan, thank you. I'm thanking you now. Uh, That is about all I have for right now. I really, again, appreciate you listening. I We'll make no promises about when the next episode will come out. I think I'm probably going to do 1985. It seems logical to continue the trilogy here, and uh, I'll work on it. And you know, I'll be traveling a lot in the next few weeks because I'm writing that book about the Ryder Cup. And um, but yeah, in the meantime, I, I would like to study up, and maybe I'll do 85 and 87 together because we we covered a lot of background today. So maybe those can all fit in one podcast. All right, I appreciate it. Have a great day, and um, goodbye.